right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a friend of mine who has a new book out, Zach Carabell. Um, book is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to jump right in, which is you've got this really good historical perspective. When you look at the stock, and you're also an investor, when you look at the stock market right now, what do you think? Does like the 1920s just like keep flashing in bright lights in your head or what's your take on it? My take is uh, is is many and varied, which is terrible if I were on a three-minute TV segment, but which I can get away with. On a podcast, you can get away with it. Yes, yeah, so I can get away from being a little more digressive. Um, so one, just, just the book angle. Brown Brothers is this 200-plus-year-old investment firm that still is in existence that most people don't know about because they never went public. They never became too big to fail. They didn't bet shareholder money. And their take on the stock market probably would have been it is rife and rampant with speculation, but there are select areas of opportunity. And they actually helped create the modern wealth management industry in the 1930s. And one thing that's relevant for today is they, they create this brochure and they look back and they said, if an investor had bought stocks in 1900, 1910, 1920, how would they have been doing in the mid thirties? And basically at every 10 year period, if they had bought the winners at each of those 10 year junctures, they, they would have lost money. Now, that doesn't mean that if you buy Apple and Amazon and Google and, you know, you name it today, that you're going to lose money in 10 years. But it was an instructive look at um, just how quickly things change and how quickly things morph. And that's totally different than is there a bubble or is there not? That's just by way of saying things that are working now may not be working so well. And the idea of like invest and put it away and and, and don't touch it, um, which used to be the mantra I think we grew up with, right? just doesn't apply uh, to the two markets today. So that's my, you know, my short part. Do you invest in equities or? or... I do. And so how does the, the book and what you learned change how you now think about investing? Well, I think it's that that is the reminder amongst many of liking something today does not mean liking it tomorrow. You know, don't don't fall in love with your winners would be this the trading mantra part of it. Yeah. Uh, and you have to constantly be on top of these things and constantly be looking at them because way more than in the 20s, 30s, 40s, the pace of change and the velocity of momentum and sentiment going from, we think this is amazing and we think it's terrible. I mean, think of a company, this of course has nothing to do with Brown Brothers, but they would have totally appreciated this, uh, like Teladoc today, which is one of the better, one of the more marquee examples of a publicly traded company that has tried to consolidate virtual medicine and obviously was considered to be one of the winners in a pandemic age. Um, you know, that stock went up from the teens to over $300 a share and then back down below $150 a share in, in the space of like eight months. And that is hardly uh, uncommon in a world where people are constantly trying to figure out what's working, what's not, what's on top, what isn't, and, the, and then the velocity of money behind it. Well, and then how does the injection of all the stimulus money, and then if the infrastructure bill and the American Families Plan all pass, uh, so you know, talking probably all in close to ten trillion dollars. Yeah. How, how does that impact all of this? So first of all, I mean, one thing to be mindful of: Brown Brothers was like wasp, Protestant work ethic, rectitude, and I think that's an incredibly vital element in a healthy financial system that is that is underrepresented by far in a world where everybody wants to make a lot of money now and is willing to take undue risk to do so. Um, the flip side of that is an awareness of 
to ask what the effect of $10 trillion of spending is going to be on markets and the economy, and then to try to look to the past by way of example is useless because there is no example of this kind of spending. We are spending multiples of what was spent in the entire New Deal uh, or in the entire period of the Great Society and doing so in the space of 18 months, whereas both of those things unfolded over the space of you know seven years for the Great Depression and New Deal, and, and maybe as much as 10 if you really add up all the Great Society programs from 1965 into the mid-70s. So there's just no, there's no past parallel here. And then the assumption that you can just plug in a bigger number to an old formula and then come up with, well, there, of course there will be inflation and of course there will be asset bubbles. I just don't believe that. I don't believe you can make that statement just because you believe that past patterns are predictive of a completely new con- contingency in the present. So um, people on the far left, like AOC and Sanders and others, have said we haven't invested nearly enough um, in this situation, although you're saying it's vastly more than Roosevelt or Johnson did, and they're probably considered two of the most effective kind of progressive political leaders in American history. Um, Is there any reason why we should be doing even more than we're doing right now? Well, first of all, you probably could make an argument that we haven't invested nearly enough. So most of the stimulus spending to date has been uh, to compensate for lost income, not to invest for future contingencies. And the, the, the infrastructure bill, whatever will pass, I mean, I imagine given that Republicans have suggested some, something on the order of $700 billion and Biden has proposed something on the order of $2 trillion, it would seem likely there will be something on the order of a trillion dollars, although never, yeah. you never know. With Democratic votes only, but yeah, it'll be something like that. And that will be in genuine infrastructure, as in longer term projects that should yield some degree of longer term return. America has been very good uh, in inducing spending. So most of our most of our stimulus money over the past years has been into people's pockets to either let them save it or spend it, which is very different than long-term spending. And I and I think that's been a real problem of how we design our our money. Although politically, it makes a lot of sense, right? Infrastructure spending doesn't show up in an election cycle. Money in people's pockets does, and therefore the incentive is entirely on the pockets and not on the long term. And and the next phase of Biden of Biden's plan for childcare and education and healthcare is an investment in in structural change and how we support families. Uh, But it also is a new thing in that it doesn't really show up in an election cycle, right? We won't know the effects of that in 2022. We won't really know them in 2024, maybe, assuming it passes, which I think is probably not a great assumption at this point. Uh, But that too is somewhat untested. So getting back to the book, what what made you choose Brown Brothers? And what was interesting about them to you and, and for the listeners, what's so interesting about them that they should take the time to read the book? So look, I think uh, one is just the way in which money, literally paper money, paper promises, has been a, a source of immense fuel that has underpinned a lot of the growth of the United States for better and for worse. And that unlike everywhere else in the world in the 19th century and into the 20th, if you had a dream and a hope, it was much easier to get money as fuel to make it real or to or to fail than it would have been anywhere in the world where most money, most uh, capital was tied up in human beings, land, or gold and silver. And and the United States was a very liquid country very early on. And I thought that was a fascinating story. And Brown Brothers is at the center of that alchemy. And I thought the fact that there is a class of financiers who ends up shaping every 
major global institution that we are now living with from the World Bank to the World Trade Organization to the United Nations to our own domestic Pentagon and the CIA and the National Security Council and, and even the Federal Reserve to some degree, that understanding what the mindset of these people were and, and Brown Brothers partners were pretty central in that, including Prescott Bush, who was the scion to two presidents. Um, the patriarch, not the science, right? And understanding the role of money in, in the rise of American power and understanding the degree to which the financial world today has developed a definition of capitalism, mostly from the 1980s, that is one definition of capitalism, but not the only one, and is not the most constructive definition of, I'm going to you know, bet shareholder money, not partnership money, other people's money, and, and a, a relentless pursuit for more at the expense of enough. Uh, and that the final point I thought was fascinating is this was a firm culturally that was steeped in the idea that they can't thrive unless the commons thrive, that they individually and collectively as partners wouldn't do well unless the society around them did well. And that doesn't mean they were selfless and altruistic. And there's a lot in the book that they did that is less than savory, including being complicit in slavery. But the idea of what do elites owe the larger society um, what do those who have more owe to give back to the world around them is an incredibly relevant one in a world today where that too is, is questionable whether or not those who have thrived the most see that responsibility. So who, who's their kind of equivalent uh, in modern day finance and who is their diametric opposite? So weirdly enough, they're kind of their equivalent in modern day finance. The, you know, the diametric opposite would be hedge fund X, you know, that is, that is, relentlessly pursuing uh, short-term profit with no regard for the consequences of what that capital in motion might or might not uh, destroy or create. And, and again, I am not knocking like hedge funds and VC firms. I mean, why? Yeah, like I'm, I, I've, I've been part of this world to some degree. Um, I'm not knocking them whole cloth. I'm just saying that as a, as a sensibility what's happened in contemporary finance amongst gazillions of firms, and it was the banks before 2008, 2009, but with the layers of regulation now, it's very hard for a money center bank like JP Morgan or Citibank to really be too speculative just because the, they are under such regulatory burdens, that a healthy system is at the, at the center of the system. People should be small c conservative about money. The financiers should be aware that money can destroy and should be measured in the risks they take and not bet the house's money. And then on the periphery, you want the VCs and you want the speculation. Like Brown Brothers would never have funded Elon Musk. They never would have funded a lot of the companies you're funding. Uh, and you want that capital in motion in society. But you want it to be the periphery and not the center. And what's happened in finance, I think, in the past 30 years is that that sensibility has become central and the more conservative, maybe even humdrum, but careful and cautious has become peripheral. And I don't think that that's a healthy balance. Okay, so you mentioned Brown Brothers wouldn't invest in Elon Musk or the kind of stuff that my fund invests in. Um, based on what you've learned about them over you know, this very long period of time, um, what lessons should tech investors and startups take from it that you think would be useful to keep in mind in 2021? Well, I mean, the biggest one is less for the tech investors and startups. It's more for the titans of tech. Um, if you become large enough and central enough, which many technology companies have and which many fledgling technology companies aspire to be, you need to be mindful of the consequences. A few, few years ago, there was a company, and you'll know the name of this, Bradley, and I can't remember. Um, it was a, 
I think they were going to, it was like a bodega.com or something like that. Yeah, bodega. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, it was called bodega. And the, the, when asked about whether or not this might be disruptive of a lot of small businesses, I think the, the, the people who started it were, were either they were badly quoted or they did a bad quote, basically saying if if those businesses are meant to you know go the way of the dinosaur and not thrive in a tech enhanced world, so be it. I, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I mean that's an accurate description of it. Yeah, and I and I think the reason why people latched onto that was. It was an honest reflection of what a lot of tech entrepreneurs and tech companies believe in a way that is so profoundly tone deaf to the fact that we all are embedded in a larger society and, and you can't be willfully ignorant of or refuse to see the potentially disruptive effects of what you do. And if you are willfully refusing to see that, at some point or another, the world around you is going to make you see that. And it's going to make you see that in a way that is going to be painful, difficult, contentious, and combative. And I think that, that the point is to, to recognize that any wealth that you generate is embedded in a larger public good or commons that may in fact involve government, um, simply as, a, as, a, as a, a force that brings together multiple voices and actors and stakeholders, uh, and that you have a responsibility both to your shareholders, i.e. to maintain your franchise, and to the larger society to be part of that conversation. You know, so if you're going to do something that is disruptive, uh, be mindful of that and think about how can that be offset? Uh, what can I do to actually explain it and show that, you know, the, the trade-offs are worth it? You got to get in, you got to get in the dirt, you got to get in the fray and not believe that, oh, well, so be it. So it goes. And I think that's really missing in Techland. I think that just as someone who talks to founders and, and startups all day, I think they're actually much more mindful of that than they come off um, because these are generally pretty smart, thoughtful people. I mean, being a venture capitalist is fun because every time someone pitches us a company, they're smart people with an interesting idea, right? It doesn't mean we're going to invest in it. I think we invest in 1.4% of the companies that we look at. Um, but, but they're more thoughtful than they get credit for. And I, I don't know if it's just lack of self-awareness or bad branding overall or a media narrative that just, as you know, once the narrative gets set, it's very hard to change it. Um, but, but ironically, I think the reality of their awareness is better than the perception of their awareness. And that may be totally true. And it may be shaded by the fact that, it, look, you'd be hard pressed to defend the absence of, of really sort of civic mindedness on the part of Amazon or Google or Apple, you know, go down the list. Um, and look, I invest in all these companies. I'm not, <laughs> and I use all their products like we all do. So in that sense, I'm speaking as someone who recognizes that if you think about what's going on today in the regulatory front, 50 states, attorney generals, the entire European Union moves in a bipartisan way in Congress. Like, you know, you have a problem when Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren agree uh, on the overall arc of what they should be doing about tech companies, right? Like, even more, here's when I knew Google really had a problem. When Josh Hawley was the attorney general of the state of Missouri, but obviously already thinking about his next move, he filed an antitrust suit against Google. And I remember thinking at the time two things. One, what jurisdiction does the Attorney General of Missouri have over this? But two, Google's politics have really shifted in that, you know, they went from just saying, don't be evil, and everyone would just laugh and smile and tell them how much they love them, to Hawley's polling clearly showing that the majority of the constituents he cared about dislike Google, right? To me, that was, he was actually the first indication that the worm had really turned. And I think there, you know, these companies have been absent in constructively shaping 
public dialogues around privacy, around wealth, around access. They've hired lobbyists to try to shape legislation, and Google in particular has hired very good ones in Washington. But that's not the same as publicly being a part of a conversation. And and I don't, it's weird, like, it's not the hardest thing in the world. It doesn't require huge investments, doesn't require huge money. But it does, and this is where Brown Brothers is quite relevant, require a cultural ethos where you are mindful that your decisions and your business model has consequences um, that you need to speak to. And the more powerful and successful you become, the more the pressure of that grows and the absence of that is deafeningly silent. I want to pivot to a, a different book of yours that, that, that is a topic really in the news right now. So the, the book, as I'm sure you could guess, is Peace Be Upon You, the story of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish coexistence. Uh, and your thesis, uh, as I understand it, is that despite all the conflicts and wars and flare-ups, you know, there's been a long history of cooperation and trade and tolerance between the three religions um, as well. So one, why were they able to get along before and, and why is it so problematic now? So it's weird. You know, when I wrote the book in uh, about 10 or 11 years ago, maybe it was a little longer than that, it was still in the midst of we were still in Iraq. Uh, this is before the rise of ISIS as, as quite the force, but it was beginning. Al-Qaeda was still bigger. And, you know, it was much more about the belief that this was just the latest chapter in, in an internal conflict. One that, by the way, you know, the Muslim world buys into just as much as the Christian and Jewish world, meaning like we've been fighting, we're always going to fight, we've always fought. And I wanted to show the ways in which that's absolutely part of our history, but it's also a selective part of our history. And there were huge periods of time where nothing much happened and people got along and they lived side by side and they didn't feel a need to kill each other and they didn't believe in each other's God or they didn't believe in each other's definition of the same God, um, but they dealt with it. They dealt with difference. And that that, that was also useful in, in a more subtle way for American understanding American society. That message, by the way, I think has become a lot more relevant in 2021 in terms of, you know, Americans look back at their own past and I think have this rose-tinted, completely distorted reading of our own history that we somehow have been, that, that, that democracy is played by Marcus of Queensberry rules and everybody's just kind of sat down and, you know, debated difficulty and difference and then we've kind of worked it out. Um, when in fact it's been hugely contentious and we've simply found a way to live with each other without an immediate need to kill each other. And I know that's an awfully low bar, but it's a really important low bar. And, yeah, well, it's one that we're not clearing at the moment. Right. But I mean, I think that's the, you know, so if you want to, I know we're jumping all over the place, but that's kind of fun. If you want to look at right now, we're, we're, we're having this conversation, whoever's listening to it later, in the midst of a massive, I guess, flare up is an understatement of violence between the Israelis and, and Hamas and Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and that seems to be kind of a, you know, the way the, the spin politically and in the media is, oh, here we go again. They've always been fighting. If you were really to step back, one remarkable thing about the present violence is the rest of the Arab world is basically MIA and uninterested in making a huge issue of this. You know, they've just signed a peace, a bunch of the Gulf states just signed a peace treaty with Israel. At any other point in the past seven years, this would have been like, we're going to withdraw ambassadors, we're going to go to the UN. I mean, it would have been a, an international crisis and certainly a, a pan-Arab one. And that's not happening at all, which means there's actually more coexistence going on. Uh, certainly between the Arabs and the Israelis, than has ever gone on in the past 70 plus years. That is no comfort if you're living in Gaza um, and no justification. I mean, I'm not really taking sides here. I'm just observing that there has actually been some change. But but let's see, yeah, it's funny because my, my son, who's 12, I've been trying to explain all this to him. He's asked some questions that are 
actually pretty, pretty insightful. So it, the Abraham Accords mean that Israel now has uh, you know, normalized relations with, with four different Gulf state countries, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, there are some countries like Egypt that Israel was already kind of starting to work with, um, you know, Dubai, UAE, all of that. And Jordan. Jordan, right. So if we get to a point where a lot of, uh, of the Arab countries say Israel is actually a useful economic partner to us, we care more about that than we do about the fight with them. Is there ever a point where they say, let us help you resolve the conflict itself, as opposed to just, we won't jump in against you? And if so, is the solution not negotiating uh, a split of land within Israel, but but creating something new for the Palestinians in another country? And finally, if so, would the Palestinians accept it? So on the latter part, no, the Palestinians would not accept it. On the former part, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of solutions being more brokered collectively by various Arab states, either pressuring non-Hamas Palestinians to say, look, uh, at various points in the past 30 years, you were offered three quarters of a loaf, half a loaf, and now like the best you can get is somewhere between a quarter and a third of a loaf. It, it's certainly possible that that will end up being what what is done, meaning that, that pressure will be brought to bear to force a completely untenable solution, but the only one available in a way that, again, would have been impossible envisioned certainly in 1967 or in 1973 or in the, you know, 1983 or even after the Oslo Accords. And, and it may well be heading there. Um, yeah, I suppose the grimmer prospect is nobody cares about the Palestinians enough anymore. And they're kind of left along with Israel in this sort of, you know, death dance or something, and who knows where it ends. Um, but but it is, I think, important to recognize that it is less a function of religion and creed and much more a function of power and land. So want to want to pivot, talk about you specifically and, and your writing process, because you've written how many books now? Like 12? Is that right? Something like that. I mean, there's one, I was, there's like a small book that, that I co-wrote that I don't like to count, but it shows up on the list. So. Oh, I always count that one. That's my favorite. Um, <laughs> So, um, and your topics are so different, right? You, you go from talking about economic history to kind of trade relations with China to the Middle East. Um, how do you decide what to write? I mean, look, my, my friends have criticized me for years, particularly writing friends, of not being adequately strategic about the topics I pick and therefore not really building an audience because the person who's going to read a book about Muslim, Christian, and Jewish coexistence may not be the person who's going to read a book about Brown Brothers Harriman and the Rise of American Capitalism, who's not going to be the one who reads a book about China. And, and that's a totally fair criticism and probably has um, stymied some of my ability to build a writing franchise. The flip side of it is I have been animated in almost everything I've done by the following, which is what are the stories of the past that can help illuminate and shed light on the present? I know there's something a bit cliche about that and, and idealistic and utopian, but I don't really care because I think that kind of idealism and that utopianism is absolutely essential to shaping the world ahead. So one of the ways we glean who we are and what's possible is by understanding different arcs of the past, which is totally different than predictive, right? The past does not tell us anything explicitly about where we're going. I just think it's instructive to illuminate where we've been in a way that helps us know ourselves. And I think every book that I've written, almost, has been animated by that spirit. There's a, there's an issue in the present. What what can we learn from certain stories in the past? And my interests are varied, but as I've also joked to people, 
you know, they're not that varied in the greater scheme of things. I don't write about horticulture and I don't write about baseball. You know, there's way more I don't know, won't write about, and I'm not interested. Have you ever read the book about the horticulture of baseball? Because it's outstanding. I know. That will be my next. You and I can collaborate on that <laughs> Yeah, one. We'll, do, we'll co-write that one. Yeah. So what's the process? I mean, you, you, you have written a lot of books. They're very substantial, serious books, which means you're clearly a very efficient writer. Um, from finding a topic that inspires you all the way through the books hitting the shelves, like how long does that take you usually? I mean, this last one, there was actually, it's been six years between my last book, but it, I didn't honestly spend six years writing this book. Um, I got more distracted. I was working at an executive for a financial technology company. I was more focused on my kids, um, all of which I would have done exactly the same way again. Before that, it was taking me like two to three years or even less to write a book. And, and I think for my next couple, and I'm working on the next, that will be more my trajectory. Although I, you know, I, as you know, do a bunch of other things in addition to writing. I do not. I, I have a self-delusion of not having a rhythm or a routine because I don't like to believe that I do. Um, but I'm sure I have. I'll take a rebel for that. Yeah, well, but I, you know, I think I probably have more of one than I, than I think I do. What's, what's the next book going to be about? So the next book is about how did human beings solve for the problem of scarcity, uh, which meaning why didn't the Malthusian and like the population bomb trap yeah. of we're going to have too many people and then the society is going to collapse. Why didn't that happen? Why do we live in a world of abundance? seems like maybe the, even the opposite is happening, right? Right. We live in a world of, of abundance. Right. And so I am writing a global history of corn as a human invention because any of the corn we eat was never naturally grown. It was created by people cross-pollinating and then genetically modifying and then turning into corn syrup and turning into ethanol. So it's, it's a way of really looking at how corn has shaped the past 200 years of human existence and solved for the problem. Across the world or just the, world the U.S.? And, you know, with some U.S. focus. And, and is, is there a world where, I mean, it seems like two of the products you named, both ethanol and corn syrup, I think are seen societally kind of negative at the moment, right? Corn yeah. syrup contributes to very bad health. Ethanol contributes to, to emissions and global warming. Um, is there a point where corn kind of goes out of style? I think it'll go out of style for, for uh, ethanol and corn syrup, which is probably about 15% of what corn's used for. Actually, most of what corn is used for, which is another controversial part, is for feed for animals. So the, you know, the increasing carnivorousness, and if you believe in the next stage of human innovation, is going to be to grow and invent our meat rather than really inefficiently um, use actual livestock as our meat, then I think corn will probably fade in importance. But again, this is really about corn as the, the, the way in which we solve for a lot of these problems. And it's, it's about human technology. It's about unintended consequences. It's also about the fact that the problems that corn has created, corn syrup, caloric abundance, maybe some degree of like Monsanto enhanced genetically modified or monoculture is probably more the issue. Those are problems created by a solution. And I am definitely focused on the solution part of it in that a world of a billion people starving and society collapsing is a worse scenario than the destruction caused by monoculture or corn syrup. And I think that for me is essentially the story of human progress mm -hmm. and, and problems. You know, we, we solve a lot of problems and in doing so we create new ones, okay. which we then solve. And that's a lot of what you're in the business of investing in, right? How do human beings Correct. solve problems we've created? Yeah. 
and 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 how do we sort of take the new ideas and solutions and then make them legal until eventually someone they get old and stayed and and useless and someone disrupts them uh, and the cycle begins again and again. Last question, Zach: Who are you voting for for, for mayor? I wonder. No, of course I'm going to vote for Andrew Yang. There you go. That's that was the answer I was hoping for. Zach Carabo, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bradley Tusk. 